I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about SCOTUS haikus, the travel ban, and we'll interview Josh Blackman. Before we get into things, I have a recommendation for our listeners. I have been listening to another podcast called Short Circuit. It's produced by the Institute for Justice, that merry band of libertarian litigators. Uh, The podcast explores recent appeals court decisions, and I would highly recommend episode 90, in which Sheldon Gilbert interviews two litigators who frequently appear before the D.C. Circuit. But moving on, Tiffany, what is happening at SCOTUS this week? Yeah, so Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein argued a case this week about sentencing guidelines. So that's exciting. It was exciting SCOTUS banter. It's not completely unusual for a Department of Justice official to argue a case, but it's also not super common. And Rosenstein borrowed a morning suit from the Solicitor General's office because it's (laughs) traditional for government lawyers to wear tails. And Rosenstein said the office sent him six pairs of pants to choose from, but they came a bit wrinkled, so he had to go and press them. (laughs) And Jess Braven at the Wall Street Journal reported that the last time Rosenstein borrowed a suit from the SG's office was for Justice Gorsuch's investiture. And when he got that suit, it was missing buttons, and he had to take it to the dry cleaner to get them replaced. Maybe he needs to invest in some tales of his own at this point. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And the court also heard an important case about whether the SEC's method of appointing administrative law judges violates the appointments clause of the Constitution. Um, So we'll certainly be reporting back about that case once it's decided. The court also heard oral argument in the travel ban case, and Josh Blackman will join us later in this episode to talk about that. But speaking of the travel ban, serial amicus brief filer David Boyle submitted a rather unique brief in support of Hawaii and the other challengers in this case. And I think it's better if I just read a little bit from it. So the summary of the argument says, subtext slash context is of import in this case, Rather, as a bird's shrill tweets might give clues to its behavior. And here, <laughs> here's the argument. This is the entire argument of the brief, which is usually several pages, and this is it. A haiku ban might not be anti-Japanese per se, but dot, 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 you know. And that's That's it. it. <laughs> I think so, this might be the shortest amicus brief that the Supreme Court has ever received. I bet uh, all of the justices read this one because it's so it's so short. Not just Justice Breyer, since he always yeah, points out that he, he he's read all of the briefs. Yeah, he clarified that. But moving on, uh, the court issued three opinions this week. First up was Jesner versus Arab Bank, and this case involves the Alien Tort Statute, which was passed as part of the Judiciary Act, passed by the first Congress in 1789. The law authorizes district courts to hear any civil action for an alien. Uh, by an alien for a tort only, committed in violation of the law of nations or a treaty of the United States. Now, since the 1980s, this law has been used. It's popped up in lawsuits alleging human rights violations. So the big issue before the court in the Jesner case is whether the alien tort statute or the ATS applies to foreign corporations. Five justices said no, uh, and there were three separate opinions on, on why the answer is no. So the case was brought by victims of Hamas who are not U.S. citizens. They sued Jor- Jordan's Arab Bank for sending large sums of money from its New York branch to support attacks in Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. 
Justice Kennedy wrote the main opinion, which was sometimes a majority and sometimes a plurality, explaining that the ATS was intended to promote harmony in international relations by ensuring foreign plaintiffs have a remedy for international law violations, uh, where the absence of such a remedy might provoke foreign nations to hold the United States accountable. But here he said that it was relatively minor. There was a relatively minor connection to conduct in the United States. Now, Justices Gorsuch and Alito both wrote separate concurrences, concurring only in the judgment and then on different grounds, uh, writing separately that Congress and not the courts should create new causes of action under the ATS. Uh, Justice Sotomayor wrote the dissent, which was joined by Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan, noting that uh, nothing about the corporate form in itself raises foreign policy concerns that should immunize them from liability. And she also pointed out that the court has allowed corporations to enjoy fundamental rights in cases like Citizens United and Hobby Lobby, but it's uh, uh, now without uh, having to shoulder the fundamental responsibilities. So that was the the end of the Jessner case. <laughs> The court also decided oil states, which is a case about whether the Patent and Trademark Office's procedure, known as inter partes review, which allows private parties to challenge previously issued patents, violates Article Three of the Constitution or the Seventh Amendment. So oil states, in this case, obtained a patent related to technology used in hydraulic fracturing and later sued Green's Energy for infringement in district court. And Greens then challenged the patent's validity in court and petitioned the Patent and Trademark Office for inter partes review. So then the Patent Trial and Appeals Board concluded that oil states' claims were not uh, were unpatentable. So oil states appealed to the federal circuit, arguing that actions to revoke a patent must be tried in an Article III court before a jury. And in a 7-2 opinion written by Justice Thomas, the court held that the grant granting of a patent falls within the public rights doctrine and that granting patents is one of the constitutional functions that can be carried out by executive or legislative departments without judicial determinations. Um, the, the court said that inter partes review is simply a reconsideration of that grant and Congress has permissibly reverse the Patent and Trademark Office's authority to conduct that uh, reconsideration, or reserved, rather. Uh, Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by the Chief Justice, dissented, forcefully arguing that history requires that the judiciary resolve these types of disputes and that the majority's opinion signals a retreat from Article Three guarantees. So I think it'll be interesting to um, read some of the commentary after this decision. I think there's some dispute between Thomas and Gorsuch about, you know, the history of patents and whether they're public and and private rights that I I look forward to being flushed out. And finally, the court decided a related case, SAS Institute versus Inaku. I think that's how you say it. And this case posed the question of whether when the Patent and Trademark Office, Office initiates inter partes review, it must resolve all of the claims of patent invalidity in a case or whether it may choose to review only some of them. In an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by the Chief Thomas Kennedy and Alito, the court concluded that the PTO cannot select from among the claims of invalidity raised by a party because the statute directs the PTO to review every claim. So we recently spoke with Josh Blackman. We're pleased to have Josh Blackman with us today, his second time on the podcast. Josh is a law professor at the South Texas College of Law in Houston and a prolific blogger. Welcome back to SCOTUS 101, Josh. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I think you were actually our first guest that we Was had. Was I? Oh. Yeah, yeah, I think so. It's gone downhill from there. 
almost <laughs> almost a year ago. Right. Uh, so you've come straight from the oral argument in the travel ban case. So tell us, how do you think it went? Um, honestly, the biggest surprise for the argument was that I got Lynn Manuel Miranda's signature. He signed my pocket constitution. <laughs> uh, it's as close as I'll get to having Alexander Hamilton sign something. We know what his signature looks like, so we can compare it to the original. Um, yeah, there was some there was some um, interesting people in the audience. Yeah, I saw. Um, well. Two of the justices' wives, at least. I saw Mrs. Alito and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Gorsuch. Yep. Um, Chairman uh, Congressman Goodlatte yep. was there. Um, I saw Senator Hirono from Hawaii, yep. and she was sitting next to um, who I think was the Hawaii AG. Yeah, Chin. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And um, I was in – I could hear them because of where I was sitting. And Senator Hirono asked him um, which one was Justice Kagan, which I thought <laughs> was hilarious. Oh, boy. Yeah, exactly. And um, – who else did I see? Senator Hatch was there. And Don McGahn Don was McGann there. Don McGahn was there. Yeah. Uh, Cecilia Marshall, Thurgood Marshall, spa- uh, a widow, was also there. She was seeing it right, right next to Don McGahn. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Yeah, but uh, it wasn't as crowded as I expected. There were a lot of empty seats. I, I, I was actually surprised by that. Man, I should have gone over. I figured it was going to be packed, so I stayed at Heritage. <laughs> uh, so other than getting uh, Alexander Hamilton's signature. <laughs> it's not a real signature, though. We know the difference. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us your impressions of the argument. Um, this was very different than the lower court arguments. I attended a Fourth Circuit's argument in Richmond a few months ago, and they spent almost an hour talking about the president's tweets and his incendiary comments and all these campaign statements. And they barely came up at the arguments. The closest the justices came is that Justice Kagan and Sotomayor posed some hypothetical questions, that if the president wants to ban Jews, so instead he imposes a travel ban on Israel, would that pass constitutional muster? That was about as close as they came. I think Neil Katyal used the word tweet and Twitter a few times during his argument for the uh, for the Safe Hawaii Check that. That was the first time the word Twitter was used in the Supreme Court. Maybe it is. Maybe it wasn't. <laughs> um, but it had a very different tenor. Um, much of the argument was actually not about, you know, the sort of establishment clauses and media issues, but about the statutory claim. Um, did Section 1182F, which concerns the president's power to suspend entry, did this apply here? Was it similar to or different from orders issued by Presidents Carter and Reagan? Um, Chief Justice Roberts even floated the idea that none of this is uh, uh, justiciable, that all the statutory claims are barred by what's called the doctrine of non-consular reviewability. Um, in terms of the the, the constitutional argument, uh, there was only a slight comment from Justice Kennedy who made this uh, remark that what if you had a person running for mayor and made all these vituperative comments about how he hated this group or that group and then he's elected, does that suddenly change the case? Um, and the Solicitor General replied, well, the, the president takes an oath, forms a cabinet, requests their opinions, and there's a constitutional transformation. Um, I've, referred to, I've referred to this as a constitutional baptism where, the, where the, <laughs> a private citizen becomes uh, the president. I think that's a very significant transformation. So, you know, my predictions are worth what you're paying for them. Uh, but I think that Trump's going to win this one. I've said this for quite some time. Um, I think that it actually might not be 5-4 in the statute. I think you might get 7-2 on the statutory claim with Justices Breyer and Kagan, who seemed very – they seemed undecided, and I, I, I respect them for that. They seemed very much on the fence. Uh, on the constitutional claim, it might go 5-4, but I think uh, I think Trump wins this one. So what about uh, – Justice Gorsuch brought up the fact that the lower court – the district court issued what he called a cosmic mm-hmm. injunction. Uh, do you have any thoughts on on that angle? We've gone from nationwide injunctions 
to global injunctions to cosmic injunctions. So now that you know the, the the probes in deep space are bound by uh, by a judge in the, some island in the Pacific, I suppose. Um, uh, Neil Katyal, who was representing Hawaii, made a remark. He said, "You know, I'm I'm sympathetic to these nationwide injunction claims, but this is not the case." And I actually kind of agree with him. Uh, the Constitution says immigration must be uniform. I think that matters. In the DAPA and DACA litigation, I argued vigorously that a injunction of a nationwide scope is appropriate. Um, I think there are other cases to reign in cosmic injunctions. For example, um, uh, sanctuary city cases from from Chicago. Why does a judge in Chicago need to enjoin sanctuary laws in San Francisco? It, it, it's far too broad. Um, so I think those are the better vehicles. But it did come up at the end by Justice Gorsuch. He did make a point of going into that. I thought one interesting discussion was about the Establishment Clause claim and how Neil Katyal uh, basically conceded that if Trump t- tomorrow or today tweeted, I'm sorry, I love Muslims, that the Establishment Clause claims would literally go away. What do, did you think about that? Do you that? believe that, Tiffany? Do I believe that? Do you believe that would actually happen? That if Trump had a kumbaya moment and apologized that the resistance would simply fade? No, absolutely not. Of course not. No, I think. <laughs> but that's look, what he said. I, I know. Neil's an argu- He's an advocate, right? He, he, he had to make that argument. I don't believe that for a second, right? If Trump com- tomorrow came out and, and you know, said, uh, I am f- forgiving. I'm sorry. I'm apologizing. I, I love Islam. It's a religion of peace. I renege. I disavow everything I've ever said about Islam. People say he's full of it. He's lying, right? He's a pathological liar. And you have some court somewhere issued an injunction saying the president's lying. So I don't believe that to be the case, which is why the court was not so eager to jump into this, what I've called presidential speech jurisprudence, that, that we just look at the president's statements. There are reasons not to, right? And even if you can look into the statements of low-level legislatures, this is the president. There's only one, right? The mayor of Podunk, wherever, can be removed from office. The president's there for four years. It, it, there's, a very, uh, there's a very good uh, jurisprudential reason why you should not treat the president in the same fashion you treat other low-level officials. Another thing that came up was if this is a so-called Muslim ban, it's not a very good one. Justice Alito pointed out that there are only five Muslim-majority countries that are on the list and that they cover, I think, something like 8 percent of the world's Muslim population. Yeah, I'll read. I wrote down um, uh, Noel Francisco, the Solicitor General's answer to that question. He said, This is not a so-called Muslim ban. If it were, it would be the most ineffective Muslim ban that one could possibly imagine, (laughs) since not only does it exclude the vast majority of the Muslim world, it also omits three Muslim-majority countries that were covered by past orders. I thought that was um, a pretty powerful statement. Yeah, I mean, uh, then Neil Cocktail replied and said, well, if I have 10 African-American employees and I fire two of them, does that make me any less of a racist? Um, But I think the broader point is there's a very good reason why this should not be described as a Muslim ban. And even if you don't think that's persuasive, right, the standard here is not of strict scrutiny. You don't have to persuade me beyond a reasonable doubt. Is is this a plausible, reasonable, rational justification? And the answer has to be absolutely yes. Again, I, I don't find this policy attractive. I think it's a silly policy, uncommonly silly, to quote Justice Potter Stewart and Griswold. But uh, it's just not a policy that the court should be able to scrutinize. I think at one point, Tiffany, I think this was Kennedy who said, should we be in the business of parsing the national security justifications? And I thought that was a pretty telling comment. Yeah, I agree. And I, yeah, I think that was Kennedy. So you think the president is likely to win? Uh, I do. I think he'll prevail. All right. Well, we'll uh, obviously keep our listeners posted. So moving on, you recently made headlines uh, when you were asked to speak at the City University of New York Law School. <laughs> I've seen the video. I'm still blown away by the experience. Tell us what happened. 
so this is a strange thing. I probably speak at 40 or 50 uh, law schools a year, usually at federal society chapters, though not always. And I have a range of talks. I've talked about the travel ban, DACA, sanctuary cities, Second Amendment. I've talked about everything. And one of my standard talks is about the importance of free speech on campus. Um, City University of New York has a law school. It's in Queens. And the students invited me to speak. First, they asked, can you talk about originalism? I said, sure. Let's do a debate on constitutional theory. Surprise, surprise, none of the professors <laughs> would debate me on it. Okay, fine. So I said, you know what? Let me talk about free speech. It's a fitting topic because you have nowhere on your campus have free speech. Let me talk about that. Um, fine. No one wants to talk about free speech. I said, fine, I'll do it solo. So I show up on campus. I'm sorry. Two days before I come on campus, I get an email from a student who says, we put up flyers and students are planning a protest. Thing a protest? Why on earth are they protesting me? <laughs> I didn't really believe. Uh, to be frank, I thought it was you know going to be fl- uh, bluster and not actually happen. Okay, fine. So I show up on campus about an hour or two beforehand, and uh, the school security guy comes up to me and says, uh, "You know, we we found uh, we have reports that students are massing the hallway outside the room we're going, and they're going to be protesting and demonstrating." I'm going, "Okay, why? I don't know." And then he asks me, "What is your exit strategy?" Thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> this Iraq was being an exit strategy. But, and he asked, "How are you leaving the building? If we need to get you out of here." And I was like, "Uh oh, okay, this is different, right? This is not a joke. This is not a drill." I said, "Well, I'm taking an Uber." He's like, "Okay, that's good. You're not in the subway." I'm like, "Oh, oh, okay." So a few minutes beforehand, uh, he comes up. And he says, "I need to escort you to the room." I'm like, "What do you mean you need to escort?" He's like, "I'll meet you by the elevator." I'm like, "Why?" He's like, "Well, there are a lot of people outside," and uh, I'm like, "Oh, okay." So I'm walking down the hallway, and you could watch the video. It's had 25,000 hits on YouTube by this point. And there must have been three or four dozen protesters chanting, shame on you, boo, you're a fascist, you're a white supremacist, every name you can imagine, holding up all these signs. And by the way, I have the signs. They left them in the hallway. I have them in my office at school. My students were laughing at them. I'm going to frame one of them. It said, go home and blog about how hard this was. And and indeed I did, so I'm going to frame that one. Uh, so I go into the room, and uh, uh, immediately these students surround me. They're they're surrounding all four corners of the room, and they're standing literally over my shoulder, a few inches. I'm like, okay, this is different. Um, the school didn't make any effort to remove them from behind me. We can discuss whether that was valid. And then um, the student who invited me tried to introduce me, and they were shouting him down. And then they keep shouting him. So I said, hi, this is, you know, Josh Blackman. It's a pleasure to be here. And he said, and they go, you're not welcome here, CUNY. And they start shouting at me. So I was silent for a few minutes. I I believe only one person can talk at a time. I can't shout out of them. I, I, I can't engage if they're yelling at me. And they keep shouting, you're a white supremacist, you're a fascist. Um, you know, they were actually shaming students who attended saying, why are you here with this white supremacist? Why are you supporting him? We're giving him a platform. Uh, after a few minutes, a member of the school administration walked in and said, if you keep disrupting this, I'll, do, I'll take care of it. Okay, well, she never actually came back. Uh, <laughs> and so the, the protest continued unabated. Um, after that, uh, what happened is I waited for a few more minutes, and they kept yelling at me. Then I started talking, and I tried to actually engage them. I abandoned my speech. I realized there's no way I'm giving my speech. So I said, screw that. I'm not doing that. <laughs> and I started asking them questions. I said, you know, you have this list. They have this, this basically this burn book of so mean girls, this burn book of things they were mad at me for about DACA and DAPA and, and all this other stuff I've written about. And I said, well, let's talk about the DREAM Act. I said, you know, I, I'm actually pretty liberal in immigration. I support the DREAM Act. And one student yells out, gaslighting. You know what gaslighting is? 
it's just, it's this idea that people try and warp with your mind and distort reality to, to, to deceive you from the supremacy. I'm, I'm gaslighting, <laughs> I suppose, right? And then, you know, I'm like, I support DREAM Act. And they're just yelling at me. And I said, you know what? If I was a member of Congress, I would vote for it. But the president doesn't have the power to do this by himself. And at this point, I could see they were getting uncomfortable because I wasn't taking their bait. I wasn't fighting them on this. I wasn't, um, you know, calling them little snowflakes, right? I wasn't doing that. And at that point, one of the students said, I don't want to listen to this. I can't listen to this. And, and she and they walked out. I'm like, wow, is that all it took? Talking to them and asking them questions, is that all it took? And apparently it was. I don't think they were threatened by the administration. They kept yelling. They 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 reacted like to me, engaging them. It was like a vampire with garlic. They could not handle it. The reason. <laughs> now, one of the highlights of this episode was that a student screamed out, F the law. I will not sully your, your your beautiful podcast studio by saying what F means, but your readers can listen to this. F the law. Shockingly, the students actually put out a letter explaining what yeah, F the that. law means. And I'm not joking you. They said F the law means F the law. That was actually a sentence in their article that the law is built on white supremacy and, you know, we don't want to respect it because it's all evil. Yeah, meanwhile, they, meanwhile, protected speech. They said we have to – but we have a protected speech. So the First Amendment works for them but not for Josh. They're going to make great lawyers someday. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, F the law, your honor. May it please um, the court. I don't think it's going to go over well. May it please the mother F in court, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I mean I think you handled yourself – very well, given the situation, and I would definitely commend to our listeners that they watch the the full video, which we will definitely retweet from the SCOTUS 101 account. Thank you. Uh, so switching gears a bit, we got a question from a listener recently that I thought you might have some suggestions for. So Paul, a listener from Phoenix, Arizona, works in the technology field, and he's interested in learning more about the law. So what would you recommend to help Paul build a strong foundation? Well, my, my, well, thank you, Tiffany, and thank you, Paul, for the question. My background is actually in computer science before I went to law school. I had, I had never taken a con law class my first year at George Mason with Ron Rotunda, who passed away uh, about a month ago. I, uh, did you have Rotunda, Elizabeth? I didn't. He, oh. he had left, but I, I knew him through Heritage. Yeah, he was, yeah. He, was, he was a wonderful man. I'm really, really sad for his loss. But uh, it, it sparked a passion in me. But I had a strong background in tech. And one of my other uh, uh, lives is I do a lot of legal technology. I do uh, a fantasy SCOTUS, which is a Supreme Court prediction market. And I work with a group called Lex Predict, which uses data to try and predict the outcome of cases. So if you have any interest in law and technology, become a quant, right? Learn how to study data about court decisions, predict future court decisions. This will be a very lucrative field, I think, in the very, <laughs> very near future. Uh, perhaps far more, than, far more lucrative than being a law professor, but uh, it, it's fun stuff. <laughs> Uh, so you clerked for Judge Danny Boggs on the Sixth Circuit, and I've read a little bit about the application process, which includes taking a general knowledge quiz. Don't, don't call it trivia because it's not trivial. <laughs> so how did you do on the quiz? Well, you know, it's a funny story. I took the quiz three times. Um, I took it for the first time as a 1L. I'm sorry, as a 3L at Mason. Uh, I don't think I scored high enough because I didn't get an interview. I took it again the next year when I was in my first year of clerking, and I scored an interview. Um, I wasn't hired that year. In fact, Judge Box told me at this really awful phone call that I have three slots, and you're my number four guy. If number three person accepts, uh, you're out. So I basically waited in chambers all day pacing, waiting for a phone call, and then he said, you didn't get it. But apply again next year. So I applied a third time. At that point, I think it was a pity. Um, uh, I, I got the interview, and I got the job. Did you have to take the quiz again? Each, three times I took time? it. Yep. And was it – Different? Always different. different. Well, Judge Boggs has been a judge for nearly 30 years. So he has a significant bank of questions that he mm -hmm. should rely on. 
and I think he does reuse some of them, but he, he enjoys making them up. He, he's, a, he's a polymath. People often use that term unnecessarily, but he truly is a renaissance man. He has knowledge in every area, not just the law, in every area, and he knows more about it than you do. Every, you know, Judge, you know about this obscure thing? Of course, I knew his mother did this. And he, <laughs> like, whatever you try and give him, he knows that plus 10. And uh, uh, it was a blessing to have that clerkship. I had two wonderful co-clerks, uh, Josh and Grayson, and uh, we, had, we had a really good year in Louisville, Kentucky. So tell us, what was the most important thing you took away from your clerkship? Um, Judge Boggs cares deeply about the law and the rule of law. Um, he's not a cynic. Right. He's not some sort of a person who thinks that F the law. He believes that there is a law that can be applied and he works very hard to get it right. Um, he also has a lot of patience for his law clerks. I think I probably should have gotten fired at least two or three times based on things I did and did. Do judges fire law clerks very commonly? Uh, they do, actually. It's not well known, but some judges, even the Sixth Circuit in particular, do fire law clerks. So I probably should have gotten fired a few times. But um, he had such a patience with me and he was willing to let me work through my uh, uh, work, work through any of my problems I was having that I, I did take with me. Um, uh, but he's also, he's a great guy. Uh, I've gotten to know him very well since I finished a clerkship. Um, he's a he's obsessed, it's, uh, an interest is not strong enough, he's obsessed with election results. And he <laughs> can tell you in any county in the United States what the votes were for like, you know, Lyndon Johnson and whatever presidential election. He, he knows county level, polling precinct level data on elections. And one time <laughs> when we were clerking, it was election night, and we, we were just at this dinner with another judge, and he was just staring at his phone as results were coming in. And the other judge is, is he even listening to us? We're like, no. <laughs> but uh, he's a he's he's a uh, one of the I think one of President Reagan's greatest gifts to the world, and uh, I'm so glad I had the chance to clerk with him. So, that's saying a lot. Reagan gives us a lot of good stuff, but this is this definitely. is up there. So you mentioned uh, that his chambers were in Louisville, which is my hometown. Oh, I so didn't I, know that. yeah, I hope you enjoyed your oh, I loved it. your year in Louisville. Did you get a chance to go to the Derby? We did. It was miserable. I went to. I was in the infield. Oh well. It must have been 110 <laughs> degrees that yeah. day, and it was all muddy because it rained the night before. Oh yeah. And they actually ran out of water, <laughs> but they still had mint juleps. So it was it was it was it was, it was a mess. Priorities. <laughs> I, you know, they actually had a line of ambulances picking up one girl in a sundress after another who fainted from the mint juleps and the heat. Just it was just it was just a procession of ambulances, <laughs> just one after the other. It, it was it was I didn't even see the race, which is the worst part. Because the infield's so crowded. Yeah. You can't there was no jumbotron. Now there's a jumbotron. Yeah. You can I saw like a horse like this much. Was, ah horse. And we know who, we didn't know who won. So but it it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. I would never do it again. But uh, uh, I, I did like Louisville. It's a great place to live. <laughs> That's great. So we have one final question for you. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Um, John Marshall Harlan I. Um, this is not well known, but he was actually a law professor. He taught constitutional law at what's now is George Washington University, what then called Columbian. And he would lecture for evening students on the Constitution every week for two hours straight without any notes. And I would actually talk about teaching skills because I think he was a wonderful teacher. One of his students transcribed his lecture notes verbatim in shorthand, and I had them typed up in a paper, and I published in the George Washington Law Review. So I, I know his – I actually use stuff that he teaches in class. He doesn't know this. He's long <laughs> gone. But I have actually stolen some of his lectures, put to my own lectures, and I would love to talk to him about teaching. That's, That's a great. good one. Yeah. Well, we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia, uh -oh, uh -oh. Judge Boggs Quiz Edition. Mm -mm. These questions all come from a version of the quiz that was published last year in Louisville's Courier Journal. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. First question. How many chief justices of the United States have there been, and how many presidents have there been? Okay, so there's 
uh, J. Rutledge Ellsworth, Marshall Tawny, um, Chase White, uh, Stone Hughes, Vincent, uh, 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 Warren, Berger, Rehnquist, Roberts. Is that not- you missed a you missed a couple. Ugh, who did I miss? You missed a a big guy. Who? Taft. Taft. Oh yeah, I did miss a big guy. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm, I'm impressed that you that you were. Um, naming, I used to know them all in naming order. Them all in I used order. to know them order. Ugh. <laughs> there were 17. There have been 17 okay. chief justices. I... Now, how many presidents? Uh, 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 well, well, uh, uh, Bush was 43, Obama's 44, and Trump is 45. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Second question. Give a short name for a case involving the discovery of a little over two pounds of drugs by use of thermal imaging in a house that had been taken by eminent domain. Oh, that's Kylo, right? Oh, oh, Kilo Kylo? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Two Supreme Court cases, the first on thermal imaging and the second on eminent domain. Which has some of the the style of Judge Boggs' questions. He loves puns, which would probably where I got hired. (laughs) Third question. Who wrote several books with the title beginning Fear and Loathing? Oh, Hunter Thompson, right? That is correct. A Louisville native known for his gonzo journalism. That's right. Last question. Where was Alexander Hamilton born, and could he have been president? Uh, It was St. Kitts, right? Yes. And, well, the the Constitution allows people who were not born in the United States to be president so long as they were a citizen at the time of the ratification of the Constitution. He was probably responsible for that provision, by the way. (laughs) Uh, And the fun part is, who was a citizen of the United States before the Constitution? How was citizenship decided? I read an article on that, right? You have to be a citizen for nine years mm-hmm. to be a member of the senator. Who was a citizen for nine years in 1787? And I actually argue it goes back to the Declaration. We're supposed to ask you questions. No, 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 no. Questions. no I'm a professor. I can't avoid it. I, I go Socratic wherever I am. It's, 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 it's like a nervous impulse. Well, we'll have to check out your, your article because I don't know the answer to that question. <laughs> uh, the short answer, I think the Declaration provides a rule decision. You start from 76. It was under a locking theory of consent that you consent to this new republic and you become a citizen of that, of that nation. Fascinating. Well, thank yeah. you for teaching us something and quizzing, turning Can't the quiz it. around on us. And <laughs> thanks, Can't help it. thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please leave us a rating if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS 101. And you can email us at SCOTUS 101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, executive produced by Elizabeth Slattery and Tiffany Bates. Sound design by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersat. For more information, visit heritage.org.